come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. to episode number 54 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide here, David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And this is going to be Italian horror episode number five here, as I have a featured review of Troll 2, which is one that I'll kind of delve a little bit more into it, but I saw it as a child, but it's been a long time, and I've never watched that one, you know, with more of a critical eye. And then I also have the movie that's not from Italy, but of Metamorphosis from South Korea as the other featured review. I kind of delved a little bit into more into that for that review, but I couldn't find anything to kind of pair up with Troll 2 from Italy from this year. And then I also have mini reviews of Shudder, like the original one from Thailand, as well as Dr. Sleep. And I also kind of wanted to shout out here on the episode of Jessica Rose end up doing the new podcast logo that you see for like the cover art for this podcast here and I really wanted to give her a shout out here on the show just because it looks amazing and I'm so thankful that she did it and this will be something I also I'm going to you know share on all of my social medias as well to you know tag her in it so if anybody is curious and want to reach out to her that is where I'll do that but I just wanted like I said just to make sure that I give her all of the props that I can so what I'm going to go ahead and do is that this is also another shorter episode because of the renovations going on at my place kind of cut into the week. So it's been a little bit lighter week. I'm hoping that, you know, going forward, I'll be able to kind of get back on track with everything. But I'm not going to take up any more of your time. I'm going to send you over to a musical break before I get into those mini reviews. And I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. Thank you. 
And for my first mini-review of this week, I have Shudder from 2004. This is directed between Bang Jong Pijanakon, Park Poom Wong Poom, and those guys both wrote, co-wrote the screenplay with Sopan Sagdabshashit. This stars Ananad Everham, Nada Huarnak Tongmi, and Achita Sikamana. Now, I do apologize if I said any of those names wrong. Those are quite difficult. And this is a horror mystery thriller film. And the reason I couldn't pronounce the names is that it's from Thailand. This is currently sitting on a 7.1 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a young photographer and his girlfriend discover mysterious shadows in their photographs after a tragic accident, they soon learn that they cannot escape their past. Now, this is another foreign film that I learned about due to seeing the American remake first. Now, I'm not entirely sure if I watched that original one all the way through or not, but I did know what the reveal was for that one and in turn for this. Now, this is really on my list of films I needed to see, so I was catching up from, you know, the Podcast Under the Stairs Summer Challenge series for the 2000s list, and this is one that I knew I definitely had to see regardless. Now, we really get to start this off seeing images of a group of friends. I tend to know that movies like this, this is going to end up playing back into something later. And it doesn't really give a whole lot away, though. But we do kind of get to know that that the people from the pictures are this group of people that we see at a table and they're drinking. There is Tan, who is Yunap Chanapabul, who just got married. And it is after his reception has ended. Now, with him is Tan, who is Everham along with his younger girlfriend of Jane, who is Tongmi. Now, there's also Jim, who is Titkarn Tong Parasherth, and then Meng, who is Sivagorn Mudamara. Now, from their conversation, we learn that Tan is a bit of a womanizer, and his wife ends up breaking up the party. Now, while driving home, Jane ends up hitting somebody that's trying to cross the road. She's terrified, and Tan sobers up pretty quickly by the experience. Now, she wants to go out and check on that person, but he tells her just to leave. But all we really know is that it is a woman. Now, Tun seems to just go back to a normal life. He's a photographer. and He's taking shots of a friend, Nook, who is Pantan Mavachak, at her graduation from college. Now, while he's taking pictures, he sees an image of a pale woman. But when he goes back to where it was, that person is gone. And he ends up figuring this out through the viewfinder of his camera. Now, Jane is struggling with everything that's happened. And this is somewhat of a rift between the two. Now, when he gets that film developed, there's some imperfections on some of the images. He at first blames T's equipment, and T is portrayed by Kakamorsak Naturpartar. But looking at the negatives, it is on there. So the more him and Jane look at them, they realize that it is a face. This causes them to look into spirit photography, and Jane thinks that the building that was behind Nuch holds a key. This leads them to Natri, who is Sikamana a young woman that Toon and his friends knew from college. Now, when they start to kill themselves, the truth of what really is happening here becomes much darker. Now, that's where I want to leave my recap before I went into any spoilers. Now, I had forgot that this came from Thailand and not Japan. Not that it matters, but I figured I would establish that here. This does come out during that stretch where they're taking a lot of ghost haunting type films in Asia and then moving it into using technology, which I like. Now, we have movies like Juan, where we're dealing with a curse on a haunted house that can get out for those that enter. But then there's also films like Ringu that use, you know, cursed videotapes, One Miss Call that use voicemails on cell phones, and then Pulse, which is just the internet in general. 
for this movie, and of course, you know, we're getting cameras here. Now, I've already established that I knew what the big reveal was at the end, but the haunting aspects are actually really subdued in this original version. That's not to say that there aren't seen this pale ghost, which are, you know, common for this part of the world for these haunting-type films. We do get that, but much like Ringu, we're seeing our leech trying to solve what happened here. I like that this the reveals that Tone and his friends knew Natri, but it really is Jane that needs to piece everything together. Now, without spoiling things, I really like that Toon and his group of friends are, you know, getting their just punishments. It is interesting that the reason that they're all jumping to their deaths for the mode of suicide, it is another aspect that ties everything back in. What I do think, though, is that this movie is lacking a bit. Looking back, I wish I didn't know what the reveal was, and it would have, you know, had would watched this one first, as I think it might have been a little bit higher for me and much more of an impact. From my understanding, though, this movie is a bit later in the movement and doesn't feel like it is doing anything new. So for that, that's probably why I feel like it's a little bit slower. I thought the acting, though, was good. Everham is interesting as we first see him with his friends, and he seems to be treating Jane right, and they have all this great camaraderie. It is really just Tan that I don't like as we learn that he's a cheater. The more we learn about Toon, though, is he's not as nice of a guy as I originally thought. It doesn't seem to take as much as blame as he should. The true hero, though, is Thongmi. She's caught up in something that isn't her fault, and she isn't really being haunted though either both of their performances are good sikamana does well with the makeup and looking just creepy in general and i thought the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed now really the last thing to go over here would be the effects what i found surprising in that they go pretty light with them here that isn't to say that this movie is hurt by that though i think the look of the spirit version of notchery was creepy they do some stuff with spirit photography and pictures that also give off a similar vibe using the filters and cinematography to convey that we're in a flashback was solid and there's a really good montage without dialogue that fills a lot in, and that was effective for me. So like I said, I thought this was a good movie. I don't love it, though. I think that there's some good aspects for sure. I think the story is interesting, and using this whole camera thing is another kind of cool thing to play with. This is good overall, and I would recommend this if you like ones from this subgenre. But be warned, I did watch this in Thai with the subtitles on, as there does seem to be a dub version, though, as well. But my rating here is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. And then the other movie that I ended up watching for this week was Dr. Sleep from 2019. It's kind of interesting as this was featured on the second episode of that I ever did for this show, as well as it's now going to be on the second episode of this one. But I'm not going to go into any sort of kind of full-length review or mini-review or anything like that, just because I did do a featured review back on episode two. I just kind of wanted to go over that I end up liking this movie even more with the second viewing. We get some really interesting stuff that I said previously about how I think Mike Flanagan does a great job of blending Stanley Kubrick's The Shining with more elements from Stephen King's novel as well as the Dr. Sleep novel into creating this movie here. And I ended up watching this one with Jamie as I got it on Blu-ray very cheap from Amazon and we watch it together and she's not always necessarily the biggest fan of long movies but for whatever reason this one just flew by for her and I mean it also kind of made her you know cry at some points and for me it really kind of you know it does have some of that emotional touch there while still giving us this interesting story of seeing a grown Dan Torrance and how he has tried to deal with his ability to shine meeting this young girl of Abra who is more powerful than even he was with his power and them trying to come together to 
kind of help each other and for him to kind of pass things down as Dick Halloran did for Dan. And then you also have these villainous people of, you know, Rose the Hat with her people of the True Knot. It's one that I really liked coming out with a 9 out of 10 the first time of viewing it. And then this second time, I liked it even more. And I can't find any issues or any faults with it. So what I end up doing here, though, is... You know, focusing more on some of the ancillary things since I had already kind of seen everything and how it played out. The score is just absolutely amazing. I love how Flanagan here combining what was done with the original movie into this one. There's some true fear in this. There's, you know, some good emotion and everything like that. So I don't really have any reason not to come in now with a perfect score of a 10 out of 10 on this movie. So that's all I really kind of wanted to do is just kind of update you with what I saw for that one. And what I'm going to go do now is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. You're late. I'm sorry we had a small mishap. Here are the keys. Um, here are ours. Have a nice stay in Milbar. You in our city. Still telling the same story, Josh? Powers of evil are very strong here. I must leave. Goblins don't exist. Goblins don't exist. And remember... featured review on this episode it's going to be kind of an interesting one here that it's not a great movie but it is still somewhat fun and that is troll 2 this is directed by claudio fragazzo who went under the name of drake floyd and i'll get into that here in a minute as to why and he also came up with the story and co-wrote the screenplay along with his wife of roselli drudy and she also was uncredited for coming up with the co-story as well now, this movie stars Michael Paul Stevenson, George Hardy, and Margot Prey. 
Also appearing in this movie are Connie Young, Robert Ormsby, Deborah Reed, Jason Wright, Darren Ewing, Jason Stedman, David McConnell, Gary Carlston, Mike Hamill, Don Packard, Christina Reynolds, and Glenn Gurner. This is a comedy fantasy horror film that comes from Italy, and it is currently sitting as the number 32 on the bottom-rated movies on IMDb at a 2.9, and then on Letterboxd as a 2.2, with the synopsis being a vacationing family discovers that the entire town they're visiting is inhabited by goblins disguised as humans who plan to eat them. Now, this is a movie that I remember watching in my childhood home. I was on my bunk bed, and I'm pretty sure I got my father to rent it for me since he had purchased the original Troll just on a whim, which my sister and I really liked. Even back then, I knew this wasn't a very good movie, and I'm pretty sure I hadn't seen it since then, aside from catching some scenes on the movie channels throughout the years. Now, before I get into, you know, kind of recapping this movie, I do have some information about some of the people that were in this and helped make it. We have, like I said, Claudio Fregazzo directed this under the name of Drake Floyd. This was to confuse European audiences to assume that he was American or British. Now, Claudio has 30 credits under his name as a director. Now, he was uncredited as a director for Hell of the Living Dead, which I have a soft spot for as a Dawn of the Dead ripoff. Rats, Knights of Terror, which he was also uncredited. Under the name of Clive Anderson, he directed Monster Dog, After Death, Beyond the Darkness, and Night Killer. And he also did uncredited work on Zombie 3, which I have seen along with After Death from 1989. The only other film that I haven't mentioned yet is Una Nati di Poira, which was a TV movie from 2012. Now, as a writer, he has been credited with 40 works. And he had two films from 1980 where he started out with Ill Medium and Hell of the Living Dead. He would follow that up with The Other Hell rats knights of terror monster dog zombie 3 robo war shocking dark beyond darkness night killer and ending here with troll 2 now from what i've seen that he's done he does a lot of ripoff work and double duty with you know writing and helping co-direct roselli drudy as i said is his wife and she has 44 writing credits herself it looks like they worked together from the beginning with ill medium hell of the living dead where she was uncredited though rats knights of terror where she did uncredited dialogue work monster dog and Shocking Dark were uncredited along with Zombie 3 as it does look like she got credit for the story but or for the screenplay but not for the story. Now she did get screenplay credit there though as I was saying and then she also did credit for the co-writing of Robo War, After Death, and Beyond Darkness under a pseudonym. She did help with Night Killer, Troll 2 story but only screenwriting credit for the latter and the last feature she helped on was The Crawlers before which is another one that she was uncredited for before going to writing shorts now we have michael paul stevenson has eight credits as an actor and only two of them in the horror genre both are interesting enough working with fragazzo as he was also in beyond the darkness from the same year as troll 2. george hardy now has 15 credits as an actor in horror he has six of them with this movie being the first since then he's done street team massacre from 2007 and then following up i think like six years later with house of forbidden secrets Three Days Dead, Ghost Shark 2, Urban Jaws, but his scenes were deleted from that movie, Cyst, and then Under Control. Now, the last two are both from this year. And then Margot Prey has only been in two movies total, both from the same year, with the other one being a crime action film entitled At Gunpoint, which I had never heard of. 
and I'll actually get into this a little bit later, but I also had watched the documentary about this movie called Best Worst Movie. So they are all in this as well as they do get tracked down and get interviewed for that. So I did want to bring that up here. Now we jump right in and seeing a young man fleeing across a field from goblins. There is voiceover narration from Grandpa Seth, who is Robert Ormsby. He is telling a story to Joshua Waits, who is Stevenson. Now his grandson keeps interrupting him, but he doesn't seem to mind too much. The story ends with the young man being melted by a gruel that is fed to him by a young woman, and the goblins eat him. Josh's talking draws his mother to his room, where Seth is her father, and she is Diana, portrayed by Prey. She is worried since Seth has passed away, but Josh still claims to talk and see him. Now, Diana then goes to the room of her daughter, who is Holly, portrayed by Young. She is working out, and the reason that Diana is checking on them is they're all supposed to be in bed. This includes herself and her husband of Michael, who is Hardy, as they're going to be swapping houses with a family from the country. The village I'll be staying is Nilbog, and Michael is quite excited. We also get to meet Holly's boyfriend. His name is Elliot Cooper, portrayed by Wright, and he sneaks into her bedroom. She is upset with him as he always is with his friends Arnold, who is Ewing, Drew, who is Stedman, and Brent, who is McConnell. Elliot promises that he will go on their vacation with them and will show up the following morning. Now, he doesn't hold up his end of the bargain, though. Holly is upset that they didn't wait a little bit longer, but Michael is mad because they've already waited, I believe, like an hour and a half. And Diana tries to make the best of their trip, despite, you know, everybody being upset. But things take a turn when Josh has a nightmare about his family wanting to eat him. And he also sees Grandpa Seth again. And his father pulls over, but it turns out to be someone else who's trying to hitchhike. But does look, oddly enough, like his grandfather. Elliot came up with a great idea, though. He and his friends have a RV, and they're going to Neilbog as well. Now, they're pulled over when the waits drive by, and they don't stop or look particularly happy to see them. The family then arrives and meets the family that they'll be staying in their house. It seems to be kind of almost like a foreign exchange student situation here, where they're going to stay in this country house while the country folk are going to go to the city to stay in their house. Now, they aren't very friendly, and the son tosses a ball to Josh that tells them to eat. It is cryptic and quite creepy. Now, Josh doesn't like what they're, where they're staying, and Grandpa Seth keeps warning him to keep away and then to get the family to flee. The country family left food for them, and Josh has to make a quick decision. He elects to urinate on the food, ruining it, and don't mind the pun here, but pissing off his family. And then while he tries to convince them that they need to leave, we get to see what happens when you eat the food from this area. There are only 20 or so people living here, and they're hiding a secret. And we get this really interesting look at the leader of Credence Lenora Gilgood, who is Reed, who is a descendant of Druids and worshippers of Stonehenge. Can Josh prove to his family that they need to leave before it is too late? Now that's where I'm going to leave my recap of this movie, is that gets you up to speed. And I've given you my history with seeing this previously, but last year, as I said, I did watch the documentary about this movie called Best Worst Movie. That gave some interesting insight into this movie, which does add a lot to, you know, this viewing that I had of the movie. I think it also helped to make sense of some of the things that I kind of have issues with. Now, to start with the positives here, I like the idea that they're introducing here that this feels like a modern take on a fairy tale. The story in the beginning is a cautionary one of what they're going to be getting into. It isn't a horrible way to give us what to expect while also giving Josh the knowledge that he'll need later. I like that no one believes him even though this is a common trope for the horror genre. I mean that there is this glaring issue of the fact that despite its title, there are no trolls in this movie. I did read that its title was going to be Goblins, but they wanted to capitalize on the minor success of the original movie, so they had to change it. I'm not shocked by with what I know about Italian cinema. They love to do things like how Zombie was 
technically Zombie 2 because it was supposed to be a sequel to Dawn of the Dead because Dawn of the Dead's title was Zombie in Europe. And I mean, there's like the La Casa films where there's a bunch of them. The Demons ones have a bunch of un like sequels that don't really have anything to do with it, but they just wanted to get people in the door to pay for it. But getting past all that, I do also really like that there's a witch that is in charge of these goblins. I like incorporating druids in Stonehenge. It is also interesting that this was written because Drudy had a bunch of friends that all decided to become vegetarians around the same exact time, as this does almost feel like a like against being a vegetarian movie in an odd type of way. An issue here is that I also felt like the screenplay was written by someone that English was not their first language. I've been able to confirm this with things that I've read and from the documentary about the movie. It is a shame that Fergazzo, who is a co-writer and the director, refused to allow the actors to ad-lib or to help you know make the dialogue work better and feel more natural because it just does feel awkward. There are also these things that are introduced that just don't make a whole lot of sense. The swapping of houses is things that I guess could happen, especially in the 80s or 90s, but I I've never heard of anything like that, so it's a bit weird. And this was, you know, made for an American audience and it's supposed to take place in America, so that's why I'm confused by it. If they would have had it said it elsewhere, I think I'd be a bit more forgiving, but I can forgive something since Italians love to use nightmare logic and not all of their movies, you know, technically always make sense. Something else here that isn't great is the acting. We have a bunch of people who were amateurs and were given major parts. I've definitely seen worse, so I will lead off, you know, their stating. Uh, Stevenson does overact quite a bit. There are issues, though, with the writing and not just with his delivery. And then Hardy is very similar, but I will give credit to his energy that he put into the role. Thought Prey was fine. Young was cute in this film. Ormsby is also fine, along with Reed. And I just say the rest of the cast just kind of worked. But they're not really that great in their performances, and the acting is just subpar in general. The last thing to go over would be the effects. I did find it quite interesting as I was doing some research about this movie to realize that Laura Jemsmer, who from the like Emmanuel series, that she ended up doing the costume design here. And the look of the goblins, I think, is actually not all that bad. They're just wearing burlap sacks, which, you know, it is what it is, and rubber masks, with one of them being from the original Troll movie. And I believe I also read that she took from a movie she was in that Joe D'Amato directed of Ator, that she took some of the stuff from that as well. Now, not all of them look good. There were times where you could see past them to see somebody underneath, and there's another time where, like, the one mask, some of the masks doesn't look great. But overall, they work. I think the melting effect that they get here I thought was fine. And there's also some good cinematography in there as well. And there's also the soundtrack, which I thought fit for what was needed. Not one I would listen to regularly, but I mean, it worked for what the movie needed. And then there's just some trivia that I wanted to share with you before I close this out. Is the entire cast went to a casting call hoping to be extras and ended up in lead roles. Claudio Fergazzo is still angry about the film's poor reception. He crashed a cast reunion Q&A after he was escorted out of the room. He heckled the cast from the hallway, calling them liars and dogs as they answered to questions. Fergazzo and Drudy, who only spoke Italian, wrote the screenplay in very poor English. On set, the actors suggested they should ad-lib to make their dialogue sound better. The director forbade it, and all the lines were to be read as they were written. Although the movie is entitled Troll 2 to capitalize on the minor success of Troll, it has no connection or plot production for the other earlier film. George Hardy's in audition and all was an act out on his famous line, you can't piss on hospitality in front of nine smoking Italians, none of whom understood English. George was told that he got the role partially because the Italians loved his energy that he put into it. Best Worst Movie, Don Packard said that he was in and out of mental hospital during filming. When he watched it later, he realized he wasn't acting in the scenes. 
he really was as disturbed as his character. Drudy got the idea to write the movie after several of her friends became vegetarians at the same time. Once had a 0% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. As of July 2014, it has a 6% now. Stedman wore a yellow shirt with a logo during the first half of shooting. It got lost at one point, and instead of refilming all the scenes with a different shirt, the film crew told Stedman to buy another yellow shirt. The shirt he bought did not look anything like his previous yellow shirt, but he still had to wear it for the rest of the production. In 2007, during a special screen in New York, the cast members said that during production they had serious doubts about how the movie would work. The entire crew only spoke Italian, except for the costume designer who translated the director's directions to the actors. When Arnold slowly turns into a tree, Ewing's shoes were screwed into the base of the tree pot, allowing him to remain stationary throughout the scenes. He had to stand inside this pot for in tree makeup for 14 hours. Morgan, Utah, where the film was shot, held a Troll 2 festival in 2007. The town was transformed into the fictional town of Neilbog, seen in the movie. Screens of the film were held, and the mayor of Morgan presented director Fergazzo with the key to the city. The trailer actually consists of alternate takes unused in the final cut. Packard was cast as the drugstore owner after the actor who had originally cast didn't show up for work. The actors were only given parts of the script on a scene-by-scene basis, so rarely did any of them get any context of what was supposed to be happening. Shot in three weeks. The infamous Oh My God scene has been viewed on YouTube just over 7.1 million times as of February 2020. The American VHS cover artwork features a little boy with what appears to be a troll doll being chased down a dark corridor by a werewolf brandishing an axe. Neither the boy nor the werewolf appear in the film. As mentioned before, no trolls appear either. Stevenson didn't see the film until Christmas 1991 when he received a VHS tape of the movie as a gift. Fergazzo intended the sequel to be titled Troll 2 Part 2. Fergazzo wanted to shoot a promo while filming Troll 2. Josh would run into a McDonald's, purchase a cheeseburger, scream, and flee. Hardy beat out more than 100 other men for the role of Michael Waits. The film was originally entitled Goblins, but distributors in the U.S. felt the film would not succeed on its own standalone project, so they insisted on it being named Troll 2, despite you know not having anything to do with the first one. The entire score was composed by Carlo Maria Cordio on a Korg M1 synthesizer. One composition is even nothing more than a sped-up Korg M1 demo track. Fragazzo refused any kind of assistance from the English-speaking crew or cast. According to cast members, the dance Connie Young does in front of the mirror, known to be the famous Holly Waits dance, was ad-libbed, but she did have cheerleader experience. The costume designer, as I said earlier, was Jemsner, is an Indonesian-born actress most famous for her multiple reprisals of Emmanuel, the promiscuous journalist and star character in the number of Italian skin flicks and softcore pornographic films from the 70s and 80s. The production was almost made up of completely non-English-speaking Italians brought to America by Fergazzo. The only fluent speaker was Jemsner. Fergazzo and his crew relied heavily on the broken Piggin English to communicate with the cast, who recalled not only being able to understand most of what went on. Hardy was a dentist in Salt Lake City at the time. On the back of the original UK rental box, the town Neilbog is spelled Neil Borg several times. The day they shot the scenes with Gigland descends towards the trailer in seductive black dress was so cold the actress had difficulty keeping her teeth from chattering. Young did not see the film until it aired on HBO. Reed is the played by the witch and is the real-life mother of Gavin Reed, who portrayed one of the Neilborg children. The two auditioned separately, and the filmmakers cast them without realizing they were related. 
Eduardo Salou, whose company Epic Productions acquired the U.S. rights, also secured permission for a mask from the original Troll to be reused. Jemsner had designed the costumes of burlap sacks and rubber Halloween mask, with some being reused from Diamato Ator Barbarian films. Only one goblin mask modified to have a movable mouth. And then, despite the misleading name, no trolls actually appear in this film. The mythical creatures are goblins, hobgoblins, and a witch. Celebrate over the props, most notably the masks, were used in the production of Quest for the Mighty Sword from the same year. The score was played entirely on a synthesizer and consisted of a few brief themes repeated over and over. The Witch House was a former church, which was later destroyed by a fire. Reed's costume consisted primarily of family heirlooms, which belonged to her, and the dress and many of the pieces belonged to her grandmother. Conan O'Brien is a big fan of this movie. On one of the takes when Creed censored the trailer, Reed accidentally slammed her hand in the door, which resulted in a brief production delay as her hand had to be iced. Though a limited theatrical release in October of 1990 was planned, for the summer of 91 was canceled due to the heavy competition of summer blockbusters that year. On the wall in Joshua's room is a picture of The Joker by Brian Boland from the book Batman the Killing Joke written by Alan Moore. The film was shot in Morgan and Porterville, Utah in the summer of 89. A large M erected in the mountains outlaying Morgan is visible in some shots. Ormsby's only film performance. In the German version, the character Drew is voiced by the actor and director Till Schweiger. Riff by Mike Nelson from Riff Tracks, Mystery Science 3000, along with Rich Kayanka. And the Oh My God line is often used in the, in the riff of other Riff Tracks movies. This movie is part of the notorious German... Schauselfest series thus it aired april 2020 on german television station and this thing is an abbreviation for the worst films ever in that series two hosts present the whole flick and make fun of it throughout the movie so that's all i wanted to go into there for trivia but i can say this movie isn't as bad as i remember there isn't to say that this is good there are some good aspects though for sure and i'll look past the title and the concept of the goblins being used and you know stonehenge and that heritage works along fine with the fact of like the witches and goblins now the problem really becomes the dialogue is awkward and there are just some things that don't make sense there's some nightmare logic but i can't only take that so far the acting is subpar and there's just some good effects and cinematography along with a solid soundtrack but it's actually kind of funny is that they didn't do a whole lot actually for that this still is just below average for me and i came in with a 4.5 out of 10 on this movie so what i'm gonna go ahead and do though is get you over to the trailer of my second featured review And for my second review here, this one is not, you know, falling in line with the Italian Horror Month, but I really just couldn't find a new Italian horror film to pair up with Troll 2, so I end up just watching one that does kind of have some interesting kind of double feature here with that movie called Metamorphosis. 
This is from 2019. This is going by the original title of Bayanshin, and this was directed by Hong Xian Kim. There was no writer, according to the IMDb, but it stars Sung Woo Bae, Dong Il Sung, and Young Nam Jang, along with Hu Jun Kim, Hai Yoon Cho, Kang Hoon Kim, John Mi Do, Si Hee Kim, Kwai Sion Kim, Dae Han Ji, Archie Adamos, Mary Joy L. Aparte, Yoon Suk Baek, Jeff Flores, Ronnie Hurenares. This is a horror thriller from South Korea that is currently sitting on a 5.7 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being an evil spirit that changes faces, infiltrates one family, placing one brother in danger while the other one tries to save him. Now, for this movie, I remember hearing about this when it hit Shudder. It was part of a drop on there where they released a grouping of you know, films pretty close together, and they were all getting pretty favorable reviews from what I was hearing. Now, some of the horror groups I'm in were asking, you know, what movies to fill in for their year-end list, and I saw this one popping up for those, so I felt it'd be interesting one, you know, for here on the podcast. Now, just before I jump into kind of my recap of the movie and my analysis, I do have a little bit of some notes about some of the people here. Now, the director of Hong Xian Kim has a short career starting back in 2006 of helming six films. This so far is the only one in the horror genre at the time. There was no writer on the project, as I said, so moving to the actors, we have Sung Woo Bae, who has appeared in 40 projects. Three of them are horror, with the other two being titled Kim Bok Nam, Sala Sangonyo, Juan Ma, and then a movie called Office from 2015. Then we have Dong Il Sung, who has 65 credits in acting starting back in 2001. Of those, this is the only one in the genre. And then along with him is Young Nam Jang, who has 60 credits, working a bit longer since 1997. Now, she was in a Hansel and Gretel from 2007, where she played the mother, and then a film entitled Possessed from 2009, and a TV series called Lovely Horribly from 2018 to go along with this movie. Now for this, we start off the movie with an exorcism. There's a raven outside watching what is happening, and a priest performing it is Jung Su, who is portrayed by Bae. Now the girl's name is Ji Yuan, who is portrayed by Si Hee Kim. Now her mother is Juan Mi Du, and she is praying and watching in horror to what is happening. This sequence is very reminiscent of The Exorcist, and the entity within Ji is making her rot and her eyes have a bright green hue. Things don't go as planned as Ji ends up falling out of the window of her upstairs room. Juong catches her hand and then she mocks him before falling to her death. Now this event ruins Junong. He is living in disgrace for failing to save the girl and then there are repercussions to his family as well. His brother is Gang Gu who is portrayed by Song and he's married to Myung Jo who is Jang and they have to move because of what happened with his brother. Now, they have three children with them that are feeling it as well. The eldest is Sun Woo, who is portrayed by Hyun Jun Kim. She had to leave college due to kind of the ridicule, I'm assuming, but she's doing her best to keep the family together. Now, there is Hyun Ju, who is portrayed by Cho. Now, she is the middle child, and she was getting bullied at school, and it is causing her to be angry in life. Then there is Woo Jong, who is portrayed by Kang Hoon Kim. He is the youngest and their only son. Now they move into a new house and the family seems to have turned their back on religion. They have all of these items that they had that were in a box marked Jung and they keep it in the basement. 
as they go about making this place feel like home, we see they have an odd neighbor of Jacob, who is Dehan Ji. Now, he creates issues that he has a fabric maker that he runs at night, and he's not very nice. This draws Gang to go over to his house to speak with him, but finds inside something that scares him. There are dead chickens that are hanging from the ceiling, as well as upside-down crosses. Now, we start to see something is up with the family from here. Juan sees her father looking over her while she's in bed, and he makes a weird comment that makes her uncomfortable. Sun doesn't believe he would say what he claim, what she claims to, and this makes Huan uncomfortable and feeling alone. There's an odd scene as well where Miyong is ignoring her family and then scolds Wu to the point where he ma she makes him cry. Later that day, when Gang comes home, she doesn't remember what happened and said that she was out that morning. Things then get violent amongst them. It appears these family members are doing it, but are they really? And is Jacob involved? When things get to be too much, they try to bring in Jung, but he's broken from what has happened and he has to decide if he will let them, you know, lose themselves or find his face to help. Now that's where I want to leave my recap of this movie since everything more would kind of go into the spoiler territory. What I did notice while watching this is that it feels like a South Korean take on The Exorcist. There are a few scenes that feel very much like the older classic in here for sure, and the opening sequence definitely feels like the ending of the other. It doesn't hurt my viewing of the movie, but it is something that I wanted to bring up here that I don't feel it's as original as it could be. Now where to go next would be the basic premise of this movie. This is of course a possession film, if stating that it reminded me of the other one didn't give that away. I really like this take on the demon that we get here. Now later in the movie they're stating that it is Satan himself, but really doesn't matter to me either way. This demon is interesting that it takes on the form of the people in the family, which creates division amongst them as they don't know who they can trust and it hurts deep to think that your family members would try to kill you. There are a couple of really creepy sequences that sucked me in with Gang attacking his daughters and then Myung when they realize the identity of someone. Now the not knowing who is possessed or who is really themselves adds another dimension to this for sure. Now there's the idea of religion in this movie that I wanted to address. Jugun is a Catholic priest, which I find to be interesting here. Many of the films from South Korea that I've seen have a more traditional religion of the area. Now we're seeing more Western idea here using Christianity. This movie also shifts us over to Manila, Philippines, where we get to meet a father, Balthazar, who is portrayed by Yoon Shik Bik. A video of him doing an exorcism is also shown, and there's an interesting question posed as to why there's always anger before someone is possessed, and that's an idea that I'm glad they brought up. It makes sense, is that when somebody gets angry, they you know tend to lose themselves, and they become more susceptible to like other things because you're not you know as focused as you should be. Now, this all makes sense here as the family is upset with Jung, and the pain he has caused their family. So. They've turned their back on the Christian beliefs due to that anger, which kind of also seems to be something that they're trying to state here as making them susceptible. Now, next, I think I'll go over to the acting here. Bay is solid as this priest, even though there's a direct mirror here for the, that they lose their faith for two different reasons, is that I kind of feel like he's very similar to Father Karras from The Exorcist. I think that works well as having him question his faith. He needs to find himself in order to help his family, and it makes sense that the ultimate sacrifice that he ends up making. Soong is really good as the father. I like that we get a, at least a glimpse of this family before they fall apart, and it seems like they're happy, just strained. Jang is good as the mother, and I'll admit, I had a bit of trouble telling the two sisters apart, but that's credit to the movie as they, you know, do look very similar where I can feel like they were related. Now, I hope that doesn't come off as racist. It's just that they don't really stand out, and they also wear very similar outfits, but I really like how, as the movie goes on, they both come off as very different. Soon is what I can tell to keep the family together, while Huan really feels like that middle child who is dealing with a lot. 
Now, Kang Hoon Kim is also solid as this little brother. He really shows some good emotion, which did touch my heart. And then the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. Now, from here, I should go over to the effects. There seemed to be a lot of practical ones being used, and then the exorcism scenes were somewhat brutal and the effects looked good. They did make me cringe a bit, which is always a good sign, and I like the effect to make the possessed to be seen that way. Now, there is a bit of blood and gore that I wasn't expecting, and they did elect to use some CGI in this movie, where there was some birds that don't look great, and then there is a glass or the foot that it made me cringe at first, but then it doesn't necessarily hold up as I would like. Now, this doesn't ruin the movie. I'm just not necessarily a fan of the CGI and felt that they could have stuck a little bit more to the practical for some of this stuff, but I understand why they couldn't as well. I thought the cinematography was good aside from that. Now, this movie is a little bit too new to have any sort of trivia that I could kind of share here. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is just to kind of close this out and say that this movie was really good. I'm glad that I didn't pass over this, as I do feel this is a contender for my year-end list. It isn't necessarily the most original story, but what the demon does really does set it apart. The family dynamic was really good, and that helps to bring some good heart with it. I thought the performances really do help carry this movie. The practical effects were also good, and although I didn't love the CGI, not all of that was bad. Soundtrack here doesn't necessarily stand out, but it also doesn't hurt the movie in my opinion. Overall, I would say this is a good movie, and I will warn you that this is from Korea, where I had to watch it with subtitles on. If that is an issue, I'd avoid this. For those who that doesn't bother them, we have a solid possession exorcism type movie here. And if you have Shudder, I would recommend giving this a view, and especially if you're trying to do like um, a year-end list and you just need some from foreign countries to kind of fill it out. So I, like I said, thought this was good. Came in with an 8 out of 10 on this one. So what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is get you over to one last musical break before I close out the show. Mamma <laughs> And now for your nice ladies and gentlemen out there who don't understand the Italian language, I'd like to do two choruses in British. Lazy Mary, you better get up. She answered back, I am not evil. Lazy Mary, you better get up. We need the sheets for the table. Lazy Mary, you smoke in bed. There's only one man you should marry. My advice to you would be is to pay attention to me. You'd better marry a fireman, he'll come and go, go and come, Zembala Bomba Manadena. 
I want to welcome you back one last time as I close out here for episode number 54 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. Now, anything that you send to me that you would like to read on the air, if you go ahead and just let me know that on, you know, the email, and I will definitely do that. And if you don't want me to, of course, you know, just let me know. And then if you want to read any of the reviews on this episode or any of the past episodes, that's reviewsofthedead at horrorreview.webnode.com. On Facebook, you can follow me at David Michigan Garrett Jr. Twitter, it's Buckeye from Mish. Letterbox. I'm David OSU, and I will have the links to all those in the show notes. If you'd like to follow me on Instagram, that's David OSU87. If you'd like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that's Journey with a Cinephile, all one word there. And then I can ask you one last thing would be whatever podcatching device you're listening to this on, if you go ahead and subscribe on there just so that way you never miss a new episode. If there's any podcatching devices that I'm not on, if you want to let me know that just so that way I can make sure to get that on there to make it easier for you. But I will also include the RSS feed in the show notes as well. Now, if... And then also the last thing would be whatever device you're listening to me on, if you could go ahead and rate and review just so that way I can get an idea of what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like. And then for the next episode here on 55 is going to be Italian Horror episode number 6, where on that one I have already got a copy of Tale of Tales will be the Italian film that I watch. Not entirely sure what 2020 release I'm going to. It's probably not going to end up being from Italy, but I will find something to pair up with it. I'm either going to go, because I believe Tale of Tales is a anthology, so that's one option that I might do, because I know there's a popular one going around there. But there's also a period piece one from Asia that I might also watch. I just have to kind of figure out what I'm going to do and what I'm feeling. Regardless, though, that is what I'll have as the featured reviews, and then I will try to watch as much as I can on top of that for some mini reviews for you. But that is all I really kind of want to delve into. Before I get out of here, I'm going to go ahead and say that whatever you do today, I hope you're safe in doing it and have a great time. This is your tour guide, David Garrett Jr., signing off. It had been a wonderful evening, and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending 